America at a Crossroads is a weekly live webinar series that brings together journalists, scholars, thought leaders, and policymakers for discussions regarding the state of American democracy, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. The series was jointly founded by Jews United for Democracy and Justice and Community Advocates, Inc. To register for our live webinars, join our email list at JewsUnitedForDemocracy.org. Now, please welcome Warren Olney. Warren is a host and executive producer, excuse me, Warren was the host and executive producer of the nationally syndicated public <clears throat> radio international weekday afternoon program to the point. And for decades, he hosted KCRW's wildly popular local public affairs show, Which Way LA. He's wonderful, and we're glad to have him, and he has a new microphone, which we're very excited about. <laughs> Welcome, Warren Olney. Warren? Thank you, Janice, and uh, thank you for encouraging me to get a new microphone. I uh, hope that uh, I can be better heard than I have been uh, in the past. It's always great to be on America at a Crossroads, and it's a real pleasure and a privilege to introduce Damon Linker. Uh, Damon Linker teaches, he's a senior lecturer in political science at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a senior fellow with the Open Society Project at the Niskanen Center. He is a former contributing editor at the New Republic, former senior contributor to The Week, and a one-time speechwriter for Rudolf Giuliani. His books include The Theocons and The Religious Test. He is now a Substack blogger under the rubric Notes from the Middle Ground. He's a former Republican who says he broke from the right 20 years ago, calls himself a conservative intellectual. He participates in the Bulwark's weekly podcast, Beg to Differ, uh, and his pieces appear in uh, newspapers, including the New York Times and others, uh, from time to time as well. Damon Linker, it's your first time on America at a Crossroads. We're just delighted to have you, and thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks so much for having me, and thank uh, Janice for the invitation and uh, for you uh, as my conversation partner. Okay. Uh, our theme today was taken from a title of one of your pieces, which is called Another Year in Defiance of Political Reality, has a question mark uh, at the end of it, and uh, we're wondering if, in fact, that is the case. I want to talk about that and get to it, but I don't think we can go any further without talking about what happened last night. In New Hampshire, you write a lot about politics, and uh, you have written about what happened in New Hampshire. So tell us, I'm going to attempt to uh, summarize what you said. Uh, tell us what you think. Well, my view I, uh, that I uh, laid out um, kind of with the biggest audience uh, about a week ago in a New York Times op-ed was that uh, I don't really think that Nikki Haley has much of a chance to uh, take down Donald Trump. I think that's pretty clear to pretty much most observers, um, especially after last night. Uh, and that has to do with changes in uh, the Republican Party Electoral Coalition, that it, even if people don't personally like Donald Trump very much, the party has been Trumpified uh, to an extent that makes a candidate like Nikki Haley just not very appealing uh, to most voters um, who are Republicans. And so she did as well as she did last night and also in, in um, Iowa because largely because of independent voters who she appeals to, people who maybe used to be Republicans or uh, who sort of float between the parties and really detest Trump. And so we're willing to go out and vote for her just to try to lower 
uh, Trump support. But the fact is that you can't really become um, the nominee for a party if uh, most of your voters don't like you. And I think that's what Nikki Haley is dealing with. Now, I would say that she did well enough last night in New Hampshire, getting about 43% of the vote and was very defiant in her, uh, what is normally a kind of concessionary remarks after the loss. Um, instead of sounding like someone who had just come in 11 points behind the front runner, she sounded like she was feisty and fighting and eager to take the fight to her home state of South Carolina in a month. And so my view is sort of, well, there's very little chance that she's going to be able to catch Trump, but why not cheer her on for another month and just see uh, how how well she can do? I, I'm, I'm skeptical she can do it, but um, I appreciate uh, the fighting spirit that she's showing. You say that uh, she didn't show the usual things that a concessioner does when she indicated that she had come in second. Donald Trump didn't act much like a winner either, at least the way winners usually act. He was angry and defiant. Uh, uh, he required uh, Tim Scott to uh, openly say that uh, he supported uh, uh, Trump, even though, of course, uh, Nikki Haley appointed Tim Scott to his senatorial seat when she was a governor. Uh, Trump right. said, you must hate her before uh, Trump, before uh, Scott uh, Scott spoke. What about that? What impression did that make? And, and, and you know, what, what, what's the significance of these two departures from tradition? Well, it's interesting that uh, in uh, Iowa a week earlier, Trump sounded sort of, for him, pretty magnanimous. Yeah. He came out and made it sound like he was trying to make a pitch uh, for the general election, like, oh, uh, uh, you know, I, I thank my competitors and uh, I'm very pleased that things turned out this way. He sounded almost a little presidential. But those of us, and that's I assume all of us who lived through the trauma of the uh, first Trump administration from 2017 to 2020, uh, are aware that we lived through many moments like this where Trump seemed to be pivoting to be a more normal president and it never lasts. And here we are, uh, you know, a week and a day later. And last night, uh, Nikki Haley succeeded in getting under his skin. She spoke first and she was defiant and sounded like she had just won. And it irritated Trump quite a lot. And it showed. I think her goal in South Carolina, you know, the most recent poll in South Carolina from about three weeks ago showed her behind almost 30 points. So she was nowhere close in her home state. Doesn't look very positive, very, very optimistic for her. But I think her kind of Hail Mary pass, as they say, is going to be that she will she will try to get under his skin every day for the next month, hoping to um, inspire and provoke a kind of constant meltdown that makes him look um, unstable and to plant the seeds of doubt in the minds of Republican voters about whether this guy really has what it takes to defeat a sitting president. Um, and that's her hope. You know, can she chisel away at 29 or 30 points to actually take the lead over him? Again, that would be pretty unprecedented. But, you know, we live in unprecedented times when it comes to politics. So let's see. You said that uh, Trump sounded like an insecure lunatic who couldn't possibly do better against Biden than Haley. <laughs> yeah, I, that's that's what I wrote in my post today. Yeah, it's it's uh, how it sounded to me, at least. 
You also said a lot of people who came out, uh, who apparently were uh, the people we also often refer to as college educated and uh, in, in various ways, uh, uh, likely to take offense at some of the things that Trump does, that, that they, they wouldn't vote for Trump uh, if, in fact, it turned out to be Trump and Biden. You said you didn't believe him. Why do you mean you don't believe him? Well, th this is people who normally vote for Republicans saying Trump is so uniquely offensive that that they will refrain from voting for him, either, I guess, voting for, for Biden or if there's a third party option or fourth or fifth. There could be a lot this year. We'll see. Um, but I think, uh, you know, rather than than voting for Trump, and I think the track record shows that usually, um, even when it's Trump that we're talking about, that when we get past the primaries, when you have a few Republicans before you as an option, and you get into the general election, when you're talking about a single Republican option and a single Democratic option, if you're tendency and habit is to vote for the Republicans. You're going to be susceptible to the appeals that Republican, that a Republican presidential campaign is going to make. And especially in our era of what's called negative partisanship, where people already tend not so much to vote for the Republican Party because they love the Republican Party. It's because they hate and fear the Democrats more. And so the message we're going to be getting as we head into the fall is going to be a relentless barrage of fear-mongering about Biden, about the Democrats, about woke trends and things, all the stuff that the Republican Party uh, emphasizes in the Trump era as a motivation to get people to hold their nose and in the end just vote for Trump, even though they can't stand the guy, because even though he's detestable and sort of dangerous and scary in ways and they don't like him, the Democrat is worse. Biden is worse somehow. Now, I don't I, I'm not persuadable by such claims, but um, I think that the the record shows that most people do kind of come home to where they normally vote um, at rates of about 90 percent uh, when we get into the general election. And I'm assuming that will happen again. And if that is the case, then the things that some some larger portion of voters have been telling pollsters is going to end up not being true in the end. Well, now we're getting into that area, I think, of the defiance of political reality that uh, you have written about and we've used, which we've used as a theme uh, for this program. Here is Trump, who uh, makes crazy statements all the time, lies demonstrably without anybody uh, uh, not realizing that. I think uh, even even his, I suspect, suspect even his supporters know he's doing that. Certainly that's true with regard to the outcome of the of the election. Or well, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but he's got uh, 91 indictments or 91 federal counts against him, and or both federal and state counts against him. Uh, and of course, there was the insurrection. So why is it that more people uh, don't vote against him or aren't uh, ill disposed to her, toward him for those reasons? And, and and what does it have to do with what you refer to as the defiance of political reality? Well, what I was getting at in that piece from a few months ago is that um, we live in an age and an era that is marked by tremendous distrust of 
public institutions, the kind of institutions that those of us who are a little older, like I will admit myself, I'm 54. When I was young, growing up in the 70s and 80s um, and in the 90s and beyond until relatively recently, there was a kind of there's a way in which in talking and thinking about politics, you didn't really raise fundamental questions about whether you were hearing from the, the mainstream news media, whether it was The New York Times, Washington Post or the kind of the main news networks on broadcast television back before cable. And then when we got cable with CNN and MSNBC and even in the early years, Fox. These, it was just sort of given that if you heard it out there in the world from these primary public institutions, let alone if you heard it from uh, you know the federal government, a federal agency, the president, from a podium, from a senator, if you heard a statement of fact from these sources, you would just accept that that was true. And then you would have debates and arguments with your fellow citizens about what it means and what policies we should create uh, on the basis of that basic shared reality. But what has happened over the last couple of decades is that, again, a, a tremendous amount of skepticism has, uh, has uh, swept the country. It started uh, in a kind of uh, understandable way with Watergate and the Vietnam War and skepticism about some of the things the government was telling us in those eras. Um, but eventually, the Republican Party learned that uh, through the lessons of listening to people like Rush Limbaugh for years, that actually we Republicans can um, can gain politically if we throw skepticism and and project dis, distrust onto these institutions and begin to doubt those basic statements of fact and just just say that they aren't true and this has proved to be after years and years and years of people listening to people like Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and then Tucker Carlson and these personalities who who kind of thrive by by sowing this kind of distrust. We now live in a country where um, there is no consensus about what reality even is so that. If there is no public authority that everybody trusts to just tell us basic facts and basic truths and the character of the reality we share, then what you end up doing is just trusting the authorities within your own sub-community, a kind of community that's smaller than the nation of a whole. It's just my partisans and my fellow partisans and me in this silo, as people say. I mean, this silo is kind of narrow, so it's bigger than that because it's tens of millions of people. But that's what we're living with now, where Donald Trump can say from the day after the 2020 election that the election was stolen uh, he actually won, that there's a conspiracy to deprive him of power and through him, his voters. Um, and and he says it over and over and over again with great authority and conviction. And 
there's motivated reasoning going on in the minds of many of these voters because they really wanted Trump to win. They believed that he would win. And so there's a kind of psychological incentive to believe it. And then they do. And there's no external authority that you can point to to say, look, Trump voter, it is actually a lie that the election was stolen. Here's the evidence. And they just won't listen to it because they don't believe in any external authority that could refute it. And when I say in the title of that post that conspiracy against reality, um, like, if you, like like me, believe there is a single reality in the world and we can know what it is and that there are certain people who are more trustworthy than others to tell us what it is, um, then we, we have this very unsettling experience of living in a shared reality where actually not half, but, you know, between a third and a half of our fellow citizens are kind of in the world, but not of it uh, with the with the rest of us. And that's where that's how we live now. So the political world is very different then. And from what it's been before, Trump was able to break all the rules of the previous political situation and, and get away with it successfully. What 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 is this What are the consequences for this for the future? If, for example, uh, Trump becomes the president of uh, the United States, if he wins the election, what does that mean? Well, uh, it's pretty scary, frankly. Um, we don't really know. He's very unpredictable. Um, I wrote a, a long piece for the New York Times in early November uh, that uh, if if I don't know if listeners here tonight like some of what I'm saying and want to hear some more, you could Google that. Um, it was about a series of uh, conservative intellectuals or right wing intellectuals because they're not conservative at all. They're you, you call much them further catastrophists. Out. Yes, exactly, intellectual catastrophists and. If you go back to the period right after the 2020 election, um, we look back at that period and it was scary. What happened on January 6th was really scary. And we tell ourselves, well, the reason why it wasn't a true disaster, that this self-coup attempt on the part of Trump failed, and really it failed pretty thoroughly. It was very scary what happened in the halls of Congress that day. But even if, God forbid, uh, you know, someone had been uh, violently assaulted, a congressman or a senator um, or the vice president, uh, you know, that would have been obviously much, much worse. But still, it's not as if Trump would have stayed president for like the neck. He wouldn't still be president today because he successfully overthrew the government and the uh, the change of, uh, of, of office. Um, but why is that? Well, we, we tell ourselves it's because the institutions held. They did what they're supposed to do despite Trump and what he tried to accomplish and what his his mob of uh, of voters that he incited tried to accomplish in, in Congress that day. And that's true, but I think it's actually more accurate to say it's not that the institutions held. Institutions have no agency. Institutions are just like a series of habits or norms that who follows them? People follow them. So what happened is that thousands of people in the government 
did what they were supposed to do based on what their office offices and their oaths of those offices told them to do. So why why might it be that if Trump wins the presidency again, that like it wouldn't turn out the same way? If it would turn out the same way, then maybe we don't have that much to worry about because the institutions would hold again because the people in the institutions again would ignore him if he tries to become a dictator. Um, but what I wrote about in that Times piece about these catastrophists, it looked at a series of right-wing intellectuals who are trying to come up with justifications for why those very people should make different decisions next time. The next time Trump tries something like that, they should help him get away with it because the status quo in America is so bad, so inimical to what the right wants to see, so opposed to the America they hope to exist and to bring about, that it might be worth letting him become what a lot of these people call a Caesar, which means a dictator. Um, now, you might say, you know, Linker, uh, you know, that sounds like a kind of uh, its own conspiracy, a kind of paranoid delusion. And I hear you. I, you know, I don't like to think that that could actually happen. But let me give you a quick scenario. Um, what if Trump does win and um, there are a lot of protests? Say it begins to look a lot like uh, the protests after the George Floyd murder uh, in, in the late spring and early summer of 2020 um, in a lot of cities. Uh, a lot of them are, are peaceful, but some become violent. There's looting, looting, um, uh, violence of, of various amounts. Trump is then inaugurated and there's violence on that day. And then Trump decides to do what he didn't really do the last time. And he invokes the Insurrection Act, which gives him very broad leeway to send in federal troops to American cities. And let's say that some of the more trigger-happy soldiers actually kill some people. There's violence in that way. And that then, of course, would trigger much worse protests and more widespread protests that could easily spiral and, you know, what would keep a Trump from at some point invoking martial law in certain American cities to try to instill order? And would it be the case that that would that be hugely unpopular? I, I, I don't know. There are large swaths of America that I think would be very pleased with such an act. And, and like, who would stop him? The question is, who would stop him? And would they? And I just don't know. Let me go back to the catastrophists and uh, the justification for the kind of thing that you're describing. Uh, who are the people, you've mentioned a couple of people in your piece uh, who are well known, who are in fact attending to those catastrophists. And uh, I think people ought to know that because it gives some uh, substance to what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, I start in the piece by talking about Michael Anton, who... Um, you you may have heard of him as the guy who wrote an essay that got a lot of attention back in 2016 called the Flight 93 election. He argued that uh, that the prospect of Hillary Clinton winning the election is the equivalent of allowing the Flight 93 hijackers to fly that plane into 
the the Capitol Dome or uh, the White House. Okay, and that, that sounds crazy. But who's who's who is he? Well, who's reading well, that stuff? Well, he writes for, uh, among other places, the Claremont Review of Books, and this is the Claremont Institute out in Claremont, California. If you're from the L.A. area, it's out there in Claremont. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, they have a large megaphone, and they're read very widely in conservative circles. This man, uh, Michael Anton, after writing that essay, which, yes, was quite crazy, very incendiary, he ended up getting hired by the Trump administration and was a senior staffer for the National Security Agency in the White House. Uh, He then resigned and and has since been in the private sector writing more incendiary articles and books. But if Trump wins, I suspect he will be given a senior White House job close to Trump, probably closer to him than he was the last time. Um, And then there's also... um, there are a series of other people. There's John Eastman, who was one of the people who tried to convince Trump that he had it within his constitutional purview to force Mike Pence to overrule the the co, uh, the vote uh, the electoral count vote uh, on January sixth. He's one of these people as well. So there are a lot of them. But the, my question is, who is who, what people in authority? are reading them and are buying into their justifications other than Donald Trump. Are there people in the U.S. Senate? Are there people in the Congress? Are there Absolutely. governors who are going along with this? Now, of course, I can't project myself into the brains of these people. I don't know if they really buy all of it, but someone like J.D. Vance is very much, uh, you know, the senator from Ohio, very much looped into these circles and, uh, you know, reads the, the folks I just mentioned, as well as Patrick Deneen, who's a prominent professor at Notre Dame, who wrote a book called Regime Change. And in other words, we need regime change in the United States to kind of get rid of the rule of liberal progressives uh, who, even when Republicans are in power, sort of control things behind the scenes. Um, and so there's there's him. The Mar- Marco Rubio has floated in and out of these circles over the years. And then the House GOP is is even more radicalized. And I can't even begin to like list all of the people on that side who are very much take part in you know Claremont Institute events. Uh, again, Claremont Institute, the, the place where Michael Anton has a perch and a number of other prominent people like John Eastman. Um, This is just kind of the the right-wing ideological world at this point. Um, The the, um, Heritage Foundation, which used to be a completely mainstream, standard-issue Republican think tank in Washington, uh, is now run by a guy named Kevin Roberts, who openly uh, espouses his great admiration for Viktor Orban and would love a Republican president, whether it was Ron DeSantis or now it looks like instead it will be Trump if he wins, uh, to start uh, using Orban as uh, a kind of lodestar and guide, uh, guiding light for how to govern the United States. So, I mean, it is widespread. Now, is it Universal? No. Someone like Mitch McConnell, who is very unpopular uh, in Republican circles these days, but the longstanding, uh, you know, Senate uh, majority leader, he uh, he uh, well, now he's the minority leader, but he used to be in uh, in charge. He you know, he he's a skeptic about some of this stuff and rolls his eyes about it, although he, of course, uh, was 
instrumental in making sure that Trump was not convicted in his second impeachment trial, which if it had happened, would likely have um, uh, prevented uh, Trump from doing as well as he is now. It may have even precluded him from running again. So that's that's the other problem in the Republican Party is people in positions of authority who don't actually agree with a lot of this crazy stuff, who don't have the guts to actually mm -hmm. use their power to stand up to it and block it. Let me incorporate the audience into this uh, conversation. Now, Mark and others have asked, uh, do you feel that the fact-based media sources such as NPR and PBS and others that, uh, of that sort, uh, that if they're adequately calling out Trump's lies, and I would add to that, should they be reporting? Should the, should the New York Times and the Washington Post and others be reporting on the catastrophists and the connections that they have to a powerful people? Is that something that uh, voters ought to know about? I, I do think so, although they sort of are. I mean, I wrote my piece and it ran on the front page yeah. of the Sunday Opinions section of the Times. It was a 3,000 word essay. So that's an example of it. And actually, the Times ran another piece about a different aspect of Claremont and its ties to the Republican Party within the last week. So they're certainly doing it. NPR, I, I don't listen to them that much these days, so I don't know if they are reporting on this, but they should um, for certain. I do want to, in light of that question, though, um, sometimes critics of the media from the left um, really try to hammer the mainstream media for sort of normalizing Trump and, and not calling his lies lies. I think that there's some truth to that, but I also worry that there were times during Trump's presidency when the, the mainstream media became, I thought, pretty agitated about Trump and sort of dropped some of its standards on vetting of stories and ran to publish things very quickly uh, in a way that uh, that often turned out to be unverified and had to be retracted or corrected in embarrassing ways. And I worry that Trump is so scary to a lot of people and so deranging because of the way he lies and so forth that reporters and journalists and editors of these major outlets that rely on trust for people to believe what they say, it, it he almost can provoke them to, to overreact and behave as less than the journalists they are, which then just makes the case for the distrust for Trump and the right. So I, I would like, uh, ideally, people to, I want Journalists to be tough and to call a spade a spade if he's lying, point out that it's a lie, but also to be to 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 kind of not lose their heads, to stay calm and and maintain their high standards of journalistic conduct for the sake of their own um, uh, reliability. You suggested, and let me ask you about it, that in fact uh, it doesn't really do any good uh, for Biden to say that Trump is a threat to democracy and to use those kinds of uh, arguments. And I, I, I take it you're moving in that direction and what, from what you uh, just said. Does that hold true for the media as well? Or, or ought they not to de depict him as uh, Trump, as who he is and, and, and the people that are behind him uh, as who they are with the kind of consequences that you've outlined? They, they should. I mean, what I, what I meant when I said that about Biden is... I don't have a problem with Biden or any Democrat pointing out the danger of Trump. I also think, though, that 
we all lived through it. I mean, we were there. It's not like people forgot. And and a lot of people, I mean, you you look at polls, you know, a solid half of the country plus some don't desperately do not want Trump to be president again. And that's good. Uh, we need that. We need it to stay that way. And so I, I'm not sure how efficacious it is for Biden to really make that the focal point of his reelect. I, he can't just talk over and over again about the threats of democracy posed by Trump, because, again, I think he's we were already convinced, most of us, of that. And, and he can't get much further into the alternative reality voters. So instead, what I prefer to have him do is what most politicians do, which is actually have a positive agenda and advocate for that. And then be critical about specific things like overturning Roe v. Wade. And that's an extremely unpopular thing that happened. Uh, and it, was, it happened largely because Trump got those judges is approved. And so, um, you know, do that and point out if if this guy gets elected again, yes, it would be very dangerous for democracy. But even if we don't lose our democracy, it will be really bad. Um, it has to be both. President Biden has a very low approval ratings, as everybody knows, and uh, he's made fun of by the uh, by Donald Trump as as being too old and uh, somebody who can't put sentences together and so on. And uh, once again, that's repeated again and again and again and again. Uh, Trump, of course, who was almost as old as uh, as uh, Biden and and who, as Nikki Haley reminds us, often makes fluffs himself. Um, what about those people who are turned off by President Biden at the moment? Uh, are they liable to vote for third-party candidates? And are you concerned about... Uh, uh, the possibility that one serious one might arise. I'm very concerned about it. Yeah, um, for for a couple of reasons. The the most obvious being that if we get a serious third party challenger, our system is not designed for third parties. It almost always ends up that what you what you end up doing is kind of hurting your own side ideologically and helping the other side because you end up dividing either the left with two candidates and then the right has more votes or you divide the right and the left has more votes. And then we ask, then there's the possibility of like a centrist, like no labels as an organization that's contemplating running um, uh, a candidate. Uh, that would be very unpredictable how that would play out because it would probably draw from both parties. And that points to the second concern I have about the third, third or fourth or fifth party options, because there are a lot of people running around saying they're going to run. You got Robert Kennedy Jr., you've got Cornell West, you got Jill Stein, you got the no no labels, labels. maybe maybe getting um, Joe Manchin to run or Joe Lieberman's involved in that organization. I don't think he'll run, but he's trying to recruit people uh, to do it. Um, and so like if that if if even one serious candidate ran, let alone if it was four or five, like I'm saying, like two on the far left and so forth, then what you end up with is the possibility that even if you can't know for sure that it throws the election to either Biden or Trump, you have the, the possibility that you could end up with the winner winning with a very small percentage of the popular vote, right? I mean, already Trump won in 2016 with 46 percent. 
and he lost barely uh, in the electoral college in 2020 at about 47%. Well, what if those third party candidates start nibbling at a percent here, two, three percent here and there, and it goes down and down and down? None of them actually will win a state in the electoral college. So you're still going to decide who's president based on it's either going to be Trump or Biden. Um but you could end up with, say, a scenario where Trump wins a huge electoral uh, electoral vote win, but only with like 35 percent of the popular vote. That would be really dangerous because he would have so little popular support behind him. And he would I can guarantee you no, he would not be one bit chastened by that. I mean, ideally, what you'd want to see in a liberal democracy in a situation like that is the person to govern in a humble way by bringing the other party in, maybe appoint some people from the other party to your administration, because you realize you don't have you have like an anti mandate. You know, if Trump gets 35 percent of the vote, that means 65 percent of the country voted for other people. But he wouldn't do that. And that could really, I think, exacerbate uh, a lot of the kind of civic rancor that we all live with every day now. Let me get Phyllis in here. Phyllis uh, has a different kind of question uh, about uh, going back to uh, Nikki Haley, but also it applies, it seems to me, to the third party candidates as well. Uh, what if Trump uh, gets convicted uh, and uh, he he's obviously uh, uh, becomes a felon? And uh, people might really have an objection, uh, regardless of what their party orientation might be, under those circumstances. What are the consequences of that, or what are the possibilities of it? Because it certainly, it certainly might happen. Well, the 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 rule of law is under considerable stress at the moment, and that is one big aspect of it. Um, I have to say, in purely realistic kind of TikTok step by step um, fashion. I th I'm sort of skeptical that uh, we're going to get that far into all of these trials. They can't all happen at the same time. They have mm. to be kind of lined up. Um, I'm a little um, annoyed at Jack Smith in bringing his cases. He really rushed them. I think the the, the reason is because Merrick Garland kind of sat sat on the cases for about a year. And, and so everything got pushed very late. Ideally, this all would have been happening a year ago. So maybe he, he would never have run in the first place if he got convicted. But he's he's trying to get he's like there jack smith is trying to get trump's defense to defend him in much less time than uh than someone in his position would usually have you know usually you'd have like for a conspiracy case you'd have like 18 months for the your defense lawyers to prepare your defense and it's being rushed so i suspect they're going to be judges who are going to allow them to keep getting pushed off and then there's the fact that even if he's convicted He's going to get to appeal and he's going to deny that it's a just verdict. And then the appellate process takes time. You put all this together, the chance that Trump will be convicted and exhaust his appeals before November 5th. I don't see it happening. I think we're going to be kind of midstream in all of this. And then if he happens to win, then we have the biggest mess legally you've ever seen because it, he's going to essentially 
he's going to obviously the the attorney general resigns when Biden leaves office and then he's going to appoint someone who will tell Jack Smith to go away and and just basically try to quash all of these trials in their different uh, phases, their different, uh, you know, where they are in train and and how that gets adjudicated. You know, I joked uh, on Twitter uh, a few weeks ago that like the Supreme Court's going to have like have to have a separate docket just with cases having to do with Donald Trump. I mean, they he's constantly appealing to them and they take a fair amount of them because he's so destabilizing that he he forces the system to confront very basic questions. I mean, he's claiming before the Supreme Court right now that he has blanket immunity for crimes as president. He should be able to do anything he wants. It's like a living embodiment of uh, Richard Nixon saying uh, to Judge to uh, on on the Frost interview saying when the president does it, yeah. it's not a crime. Well, Donald Trump thinks that's true for everything he does or says as president. Back to the uh, people behind Trump and the uh, kind of organizations that uh, have uh, sp- sprung up to uh, uh, get involved in his, uh, administ- his potential administration. Jim and Ruth and others have asked about Project 2025. It's not the Heritage Foundation. Uh, what's behind that? And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes, absolutely. Um, in the final six months of the Trump administration, uh, they started to kind of get their act together. I mean, the basic story of the Trump administration is when Trump came in, he had no idea what he was doing. And because nobody expected him to win, he had nobody lined up for top jobs. And so what ended up happening is that the normal Republican Party from before Trump ended up swooping in and they sort of ran the show. And that's why for the first couple of years of the Trump administration, despite his insane tweets and the Russia investigation and all of that, which was crazy going on, when it came to policy, it was pretty much standard Republican fare. Cut taxes, try to repeal Obamacare without coming up with any alternative to it. And so that narrowly failed. And and nothing other than immigration and like some of the tariffs uh, that Trump can do himself as as chief executive. Not much change. Nothing much. Nothing was that Trumpified when it came to running the government. But in the last six months things started to change. They started to figure out how the federal government works. And as part of that, some chief people within the administration came up with what is called Schedule F, which is a designation for federal civil servants. Um, It's very hard to fire a civil servant. Basically, like when a president comes in, the president appoints uh, you know, the cabinet head the, and then like some undersecretaries. So down a couple of levels, but below those levels of political appointments, it's it's like hundreds or maybe thousands of people who work through all administrations, Democrat and Republican. It's their job to go work in the Pentagon or the State Department or the Treasury Department, just staffers who work there in cubicles and they move paper around and make the federal government run. Um, Trump became convinced that he wasn't having success in things like withdrawing from Afghanistan when he wanted to and and doing some other things uh, in, in the executive branch because those people were dragging their feet. 
and sort of saying, oh, yeah, this is the order to do this thing that Trump wants. Yeah, I'll do that. And then they'd leave and go, no, I'm not going to do that. And they'd kind of walk away and hope someone forgot about it. And then and, and then would never happen. And so they came up with the designation Schedule F. And the idea is they will convert up to 50,000 of these civil servants to Schedule F, which is a new designation that will allow them to be fired for any reason at any time. So instead of the usual civil service protections that make it very difficult to fire these people to insulate them from political pressure, Trump wants them all gone immediately. And the and he was getting close to doing this when he lost the election. If he had won, uh, probably by February or March, this would have happened. But the plan now is that if he wins, that they will convert these tens of thousands of civil servants to Schedule F, fire them, and then they have to then hire new people. Well, who are they going to hire? That's where Project 2025 comes in. That's where Heritage and other right-wing think tanks have been for months taking resumes of basically like random people out in the world out in the world who are very politically engaged on the right and want to make a big change in how the government works and they have sent in their resumes and one of the things that these organizations are vetting these people for is loyalty to Trump and so the idea is in in place of nonpartisan civil servants you put in Trump yes men in all of these positions way down below the the cabinet secretary level so that if Trump says, you know, whatever, we're going to say anti-discrimination law no longer applies to these groups starting tomorrow so that that can actually happen tomorrow. So you get rid of the deep state. Yeah, well, take it over and use it for right wing ends as more accurate. Yeah. Judge Joe uh, wants to know if, in fact, the parties are likely to uh, vote for, uh, according to, uh, uh, I forget what the phrase you use, but uh, according to partisanship, uh, what about the independence? Does that mean the independence will determine the outcome of the election? And somebody else wants to know if, uh, to what extent people will be turned off by the negative campaigning that we're undoubtedly going to see uh, as the year goes on. Well, to take the second first, uh, yeah, they certainly will, uh, but they have been for a long time. Um, you know, it, it is very distasteful the, how negative the uh, the our politics has become, but it's also the case that it hasn't really stopped people from voting. Actually, like you know, v- voting rates are going up, uh, like, you know, not systematically, but they've been pretty high. Uh, over the last decade, even for these little special elections that that are held, uh, the the uh, turnout is often quite high. So, and that's because although it's unpleasant to have the negative partisanship, the the negative campaigning, it is negative partisanship, which I talked about earlier, which yeah. is mm-hmm. like, yeah, you know, I I damn it, I hate Republicans. They're so negative, but. That negativity makes me sure do fear those Democrats more. So even though I don't like the Republican, I'd better vote for the Republican because it would be worse if the Democrat won. That is incredibly potent as far as political motivation, even if it puts people in a grumpy mood. As for the other question, um, it is always the case to some extent that the independents decide things because – 
overwhelming majorities of both parties just vote for that party. Um, this was true 50 and more years ago when the parties had a lot of ideological overlap. You had a lot of swing voters where people would vote Democrat one year, Republican the next, then back to Democrat. And you still have some of that. Um, but it's much more uh, a narrow slice of, say, 10 to 20 percent of voters in the middle who are, you know, you, you see them talked about in, in journalistic articles a fair amount, you know, people who voted for Obama, Obama, Trump, Biden. And now they say they're going to vote for Trump, like where like maybe if you're like me and you study politics for your life and have a Ph.D. in it, like like to me, that sounds like a schizophrenic kind of way of doing politics. Like, I mean, I, you know, Janice mentioned that I used to be a Republican. So, okay, I switched, but I didn't switch back and then switch back, back and back again. And like it happened once and that's probably going to be it for me. Um, <laughs> and, and most people are that, that way if they are died in the wool Democrats okay. or Republicans, but there are these people in the middle who flip and then there are longer term deep trends. And, we do see shifts happening of people who are long-term Democrats who are becoming Republicans, and then some Republicans who are becoming Democrats. For many reasons, the most salient variable these days is education. The, the Democratic Party has become and is always becoming more lately a party of people who have, gra who have graduated from college. Whereas the Republicans are becoming and, you know, have become and are becoming ever more okay. a party of people who did not graduate from college. And so that makes a big difference. Uh, Kamala Harris has not been a particularly uh, uh, well-regarded uh, vice president by a lot of people, which is not very popular. Uh, Margaret wants to know, uh, do you have any thoughts about who Trump would choose as vice president? And given that Nikki Haley and others are attacking Kamala Harris on a daily basis, uh, is it going to matter who Trump pitches, picks as vice president? Well, given the age of both candidates, I think it will matter more than it might uh, otherwise, because just on the looking at the actuarial tables, the chance that one of these two guys, if they win, is going to survive for four years isn't as great as it would be if the person were 50. So, uh, you know, it's it does matter uh, so who the person decided is. who it's going to be. Do you have any ideas who he might have in mind? I don't really. I mean, I first of all, I don't believe him. Um, I think that it might just be a way of him, uh, you know, sort of generating buzz. Um, and I just don't know. I mean, I because I'm an intellectual and, a, and an academic and I think about politics all the time, like I think ideologically. And so I think, well, he's Trump. He's got to pick a Trumpy person, right? Like that he wants he would want his vice president to like carry on what he did if he died or became incapacitated. But he doesn't really think that way. Like, like he, he wants, he wants a toady. He wants someone who unlike Mike Pence will go to Congress on January 20th and do, do what he tells the person to do, even if it means shredding the constitution and making him uh, president when he lost. So um, who would that be? I don't know. I mean, it, it could be, uh, it could be someone like, um, 
uh, Carrie Lake, you know, kind of, you know, the former newscaster out in Arizona, who's now, I guess, running again for office out there after she lost the last time. Yeah, I mean, she's she's a gifted demagogue. So, uh, you know, that would that would be like what my academic brain would tell me would make sense. But like, who knows? I mean, what what? I don't know. It, it really it, it's impossible to prejudge this guy because he's impulsive. Uh, I, I, in fact, like the main reason I don't believe him when he says he's already made his decision is I in, until it's announced publicly, he could switch his his position on who he's picking 18 times depends because it, it depends on the last night or who flattered him the most the last time. Yeah. Back to the very beginning, when you talked about the distrust of political institutions that uh, seems to be uh, so predominant, particularly with the Republicans. Why is it more pre- predominant with the Republicans than it's been with the Democrats? Um, well, part of it, I think, has to do with that education piece. Um, the people who run big, educa- big, who run big institutions in our public life, whether in the private or the public sector. So, you know, people who get chosen to be cabinet secretaries or advisors to presidents or senators, or people who, uh, you know, are, are, you know, at the New York Times or NPR, major network news, journalists, writers, uh, people who control, uh, you know, who run universities, uh, like presidents of universities, whoever you're talking about, all of those people are educated. They all have college degrees. Many of them have law degrees. Sometimes they have PhDs or they're MDs. They, they're they very educated people. And that makes them members of an elite. And that okay. means that there's a way in which the Democratic Party sort of gets those people. That's kind of like, that's their people. But what about um, now, now we have young college students, particularly, and others who are young and being educated, uh, very, very much opposed to what President Biden is doing, uh, uh, partly because of uh, his uh, failure to adopt leftist policies, but more importantly, I think, because of what's happening in uh, Israel. Well, that's certainly true. That I, that's that I think is a different issue and is more a kind of we've sort of reverted to the late 60s. I mean, I guess now since it's happened twice in living memory for some of us, I mean, I was just born around that time. But, you know, within within about half a century, we are now living through um, another period where there's a big kind of generational gap between kind of people who are, say, 30 and above and then college level students. Young people, there is a, a cohort of them who are very far to the left. And that means, as you said, like hitting Biden over um, over his kind of what they see as kind of kind of lukewarm milk toast economic policies, but then on foreign policy have totally bought in to a kind of third worldist ideology where Israel is the powerful people and the Palestinians are kind of the underdog, no matter who kills whom and in which way or with what, what reason and goal in mind. 
it, it just it's a matter of where they sit in a kind of structured hierarchy that is global. And so it's like a war between the global north of the rich people, which is Israel, and the global south of the Palestinians who are oppressed by by kind of st for structural reasons. And a lot of the young people have sort of bought that ideology without knowing a lot of history uh, and more complicated things, just like is that going to affect the election? It, it certainly could because it, it's it's one reason why you know Biden about two or so months ago went be below forty percent approval for the first time. He's been slowly going down and kind of you know he hits a plateau and then he goes down a little and he hits a plateau and goes down. It all started with the withdrawal from Afghanistan is where he first went underwater, meaning more people disapproving than approving. And it's just been trickling down, but he only went below 40 percent when uh, when he started very vocally supporting Israel after October 7th. And that points to he's lost a few percentage point of support from the far left. And if those people actually don't show up to vote. I mean, there's there's a fairly large Muslim population in Michigan, for instance, and Michigan is a narrow swing state. Um, you know, it was one of the three states that gave the election to Trump in 2016. If if that whole minority group in Michigan decides they won't vote for Biden because they hate him for what he's done vis-a-vis -vis Israel, that, you know, that could jeopardize the election by throwing Michigan to Trump. OK, now let me uh, tell you, we only have a couple of minutes left. And uh, one of the things we do, we didn't uh, ask you to do this uh, before the program. Frank, frankly, I think we forgot about it. But we try to get somebody to end the program with some kind of positive note. And I wonder if you can do that. Uh, there's been a lot of negativity in what you've said, but I suspect uh, that's not all you think. Well, I mean, it, it is true. I, I have been called Damon Downer before, but <laughs> I will rise to the occasion and simply say, we're a democracy. We're going through a tumultuous, turbulent moment in our history. But the future is not predetermined. We don't know where it's going. And there are a lot of decent Americans who not only and you don't have to be a Democrat to be a decent person, but you do have to want liberal democracy and its institutions to prevail and to succeed and thrive. And there are in my heart, I am sure, more of us than those on the other side. And so what we need to do is stay informed and be resolute to show up uh, next November 5th and do what we know is right and uh, have faith that we will prevail. Okay, let me just say, uh, Janice has put on the, uh, trap, uh, the, the chat format a link to the New York Times article about the conservative intellectuals that uh, Damon mentioned and uh, talked about at such length. Uh, and don't forget, you can... Uh, uh, sign up for his podcast. It costs him seven bucks a month. Uh, Damon, uh, that's a Substack. Yeah, Substack. My, my Substack. What did I say? Podcast. Yeah, yeah. Substack. Okay, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, uh, thanks to you, all of you in the audience as well. We much appreciate your uh, being with us.